0: Told in the Sky, Part four, of Five Stories by Alan Norse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Wherever they were planning to take them, the captors took great pains to make sure their two prisoners did not escape before they were under way. Greg and Johnny were strapped down securely into acceleration cots. Two burly guards were assigned to them, and the guards were taking their job seriously. One of the two was watching them at all times, and both men held their stunners on ready. Meanwhile, under Doc's orders, the crew of the Jupiter equilateral ship began a systematic looting of the orbit ship they had disabled. Earlier, they had merely searched the cabins and compartments. Now a steady stream of pressure-suited men crossed through the airlocks into the crippled vessel, marched back with packing cases full of tape records, microfilm spools, stored computer data—anything that might conceivably contain information the control cabin was literally torn apart every storage hold was ransacked a team of six men was dispatched to the asteroid surface searching for any sign of mining or prospecting activity they came back an hour later long-faced and empty-handed doc took the reports his scowl growing deeper and deeper finally the last of the searchers reported in doc we've scraped it down there's nothing there not one thing we didn't check before "'There's got to be something there,' Doc said. "'You tell me where else to look, and I'll do it.' Doc shook his head ominously. "'Tawney's not going to like it,' he said. "'There's no other place it could be.' "'Well, at least we have this pair,' the other said, jerking his thumb at Greg and Johnny. "'They'll know.' Doc looked at them darkly. "'Yes, and they'll tell, too, or I don't know Tawny.' greg watched it all happening heard the noises saw the packing cases come through the cabin and still he could not quite believe it he caught johnny's eye then turned away suddenly sick johnny shook his head take it easy boy he didn't even have a chance greg said i know that he must have known it too but why what was he thinking of maybe he thought he could make it maybe he thought it was the only chance there was no other answer that greg could see the ache in his chest was deeper there was no way to bring tom back now however things had been between them they could never be changed now but he knew that as long as he was still breathing somebody somehow was going to answer for that last desperate run of the scavenger it had been an excellent idea tom hunter thought to himself it had worked perfectly exactly as he planned it so far But now, as he clung to his precarious perch, he wondered if it had not worked out a little too well. The first flush of excitement that he had felt when he saw the scavenger blow apart in space and begin to die down now, on its heels came an unpleasant truth—the realization that the only easy part lay behind him so far. The hard part was yet to come, and if that were to fail— He realized suddenly that he was afraid. He was well enough concealed at the moment clinging tightly against the outer hull of the ranger ship, hidden behind an opened airlock door. But soon the airlock would be pulled closed, and then the real test would come. Carefully he ran through the plan again in his mind. He was certain now that his reasoning was right. There had been two dozen men on the raider ship. There had been no question, even from the start, that they would succeed in boarding the orbit ship and taking its occupants prisoners. The Jupiter equilateral ship had not appeared there by coincidence. They had come looking for something that they had not found. And the only source of information left was Roger Hunter's sons. The three of them together might have held the ship for hours or even days, but with the engines and radios smashed there had been no hope of contacting Mars for help. Ultimately they would have been taken. As he crouched in the dark storage hold of the orbit ship, Tom had realized this. He had also realized that, once captured, They would never have been freed and allowed to return to Mars. If the three of them were taken, they were finished. But what if only two were taken? He had pushed it aside as a foolish idea at first. The boarding party would never rest until they had accounted for all three. They wouldn't dare go back to their headquarters, leaving one man alive behind to tell the story. Unless they thought the third man was dead. If they were sure of that, certain of it, they would not hesitate to take the remaining two away. And if by chance the third man wasn't dead as they thought he was, and could find a way to follow them home, there might still be a chance to free the other two. It was then that he thought of the scavenger, and knew that he had found a way. In the cabin of the little scout ship he had worked swiftly, fearfully, that at any moment one of the marauders might come aboard to search the ship. Tom was no rocket pilot, but he did know that the countdown was automatic, and that every ship could run on autopilot as a drone following a prescribed course until it ran out of fuel. Even the shell evasion mechanism could be set on automatic. Quickly he set the autopilot, plotted a simple high school math course for the ship, a course the Ranger ship would be certain to see and to fire upon. He set the countdown clock to give himself plenty of time for the next step. Both the airlock to the scavenger and to the orbit ship worked on electric motors. The scavenger was grappled to the orbit ship by magnetic cables. Tom dug into the ship's repair locker, found the wires and fuses that he needed, and swiftly started to work. It was an ingenious device. The inner airlock door in the orbit ship was triggered to a fuse. He had left it ajar. The moment it closed, by anyone intending to board the scavenger, the fuse would burn, a circuit would open, and the little ship's autopilot would go active. The ship would blast away from its moorings and head out toward Mars. And the fireworks would begin all that he would have to worry about then would be getting himself aboard the ranger ship without being detected which was almost impossible but he knew there was a way there was one place no one would think to look for him if he could manage to keep out of the range of the viewscreen lenses the outer hull of the ship if he could clamp himself to the hull somehow and manage to cling there during blastoff, he could follow greg and johnny right home he checked the fuse on the airlock once again to make certain it was work then he waited hidden behind the little scout ship's hull until the orbit ship swung around into shadow he checked his suit dials oxygen for twenty-two hours heater pack fully charged soda ash only half saturated it would do above him he could see the rear jets of the ranger he swung out onto the ship's orbit hull and began crawling up toward the enemy ship it was slow going Every pressure suit had magnetic boots and hand pads to enable crewmen to go outside and make repairs on the hull of a ship in transit. Tom clung and moved on, clung again, trying to reach the protecting hull of the ranger ship before the orbit ship swung him around to the sun side again. He couldn't move fast enough. He saw the light of the sunlight coming around the ship as it swung full into the sun. He froze, crouching motionless. If somebody on the ranger spotted him now, it was all over. He was exposed like a lizard on a rock. He waited, hardly daring to breathe, as the ship spun ponderously around, carrying him into shadow again. And nothing happened. He started crawling up again, reached up to grab the mooring cable, and swung himself across to the hall of the ranger. The airlock hung open. He scuttled behind it, clinging to the hall in its shadow, just as Greg and Johnny were herded across by the Jupiter equilateral guards. Then he waited. There was no sound, no sign of life. After a while the ranger's inner lock opened, and a group of men hurried across to the orbit ship, probably a searching party, Tom thought. Soon the men came back, then returned to the orbit ship. After another minute he felt the vibration of the scavenger's motors, and he knew that his snare had been triggered. He saw the little ship break free and streak out in its curving trajectory. He saw the homing shells burst from the ranger's tubes. The scavenger vanished from his range of vision, but moments later he saw the sudden flame of light reflected against the hull of the orbit ship, and he knew his plan had worked. But the ordeal lay ahead. At the end of it, he might really be a dead man. Hours later, the last group of looters left the orbit ship, and the airlock to the ranger clanged shut. Tom heard the sucking sound of the airtight seals, then silence. The orbit ship was empty, its insides gutted, its engines no longer operable. The Ranger hung like a long splinter of silver alongside her hull, poised and ready to move on. He knew that the time had come. Very soon the blast-off and the acceleration would begin. He had a few moments to find a position of safety, no more. Quickly he began scrambling toward the rear of the Ranger's hull, hugging the metal sides, moving sideways like a crab ahead he knew the view-screen lenses would be active if one of them picked him up it would be quite a jolt to the men inside the ship but it would be the end of his free ride but the major peril was the blastoff. once the engines cut off the ship would be in free fall then he could cling easily to the hull walk all over it if he chose to with the aid of his boots and hand pads. but unless he found a way to anchor himself firmly to the hull during blastoff, he could be flung off like a pebble he heard a whirring sound, and saw the magnetic mooring cables jerk. The ship was preparing for blastoff. The automatic motors were drawing the cables and grappling plates into the hull. Moving quickly, Tom reached the rear cable. Here was his anchor—something to hold him tight to the hull. With one hand, he loosened the web belt of his suit, looped it over a corner of the grappling plate as it pulled into the hull. The plate pulled tight against the belt. Each plate fit into a shadow excavation in the hull, fitting so tightly that the plates were all but visible when they were in place. Tom felt himself pulled in tightly as the plate gripped the belt against the metal, and the whirring of the motor stopped. For an instant it looked like the answer. The belt was wedged tight. He couldn't possibly pull loose without ripping the nylon webbing of the belt. But a moment later the motor started whirring again. The plate pushed out from the hull a few inches, then started back again, pulling in the belt a good idea that just wouldn't work the automatic machinery on a spaceship was built to perfection nothing could be permitted to half work tom realized what was happening unless the plate fits perfectly in its place the cable motor could not shut off and presently an alarm signal would start flashing on the control panel he pulled the belt loose reluctantly he would have to count on his boots and hand pads alone he reached the rear of the hull looking for some break in the polished metal that might serve as a toehold to the rear the fins flared out supported by heavy struts he made his way back crouching close to the hull and straddling one of the struts he jammed his magnetic boots down against the hull and wrapped his arms around the strut with all his strength clinging there he waited it wasn't a good position the metal of the strut was polished and slick but it was better than trying to cling to the open hull he tensed now not daring to relax for fear that the blast-off acceleration would slam him when he was unprepared deep in the ship the engines began to rumble he felt it rather than heard it a low-pitched vibration that grew stronger and stronger the ranger would not need a great thrust to move away from the orbit ship but if they were in a hurry they might start out at nearly mars escape the jets flared and something slammed him down against the fin strut The Ranger moved out, its engines roaring, exhilarating hard. Tom felt as though he had been hit by a ton of rock. The strut seemed to press in against his chest. He could not breathe. His hands were sliding, and he felt the pull on his boots. He tightened his grip desperately. This was it. He had to hang on—had to hang on. He saw his boot on the hull's surface, sliding slowly, creeping back and stretching his leg. Suddenly it broke loose. He lurched to one side, and the other boot began sliding. There was a terrible ache in his arms, as though some malignant giant were tearing at him, trying to wrench him loose as he fought for his hold. There was one black instant when he knew he could not hold on another second. He could see the blue flame of the jet streaming behind him, the cold blackness of space beyond that. It had been a fool's idea, he thought in despair. A million to one shot that he had taken, and lost. And then the pressure stopped. His boots clanged down on the hull, and he almost lost his hand grip. He stretched an arm, shook himself, took a great, painful breath, and then clung to the strut, almost sobbing, hardly daring to move. The ordeal was over. Somewhere far ahead, an orbit ship was waiting for the ranger to return. He would have to be ready for the braking thrust and the side-manoeuvring thrusts, but he would manage to hold on. Crouching against the fin, he would be invisible to viewers on the orbit ship, and who would be looking for a man clinging to the outside of a scout ship? Tom sighed and waited. Jupiter Equilateral would have its prisoners all right. He wished now that he had not discarded the stunner, but those extra pounds might have made the difference between life and death during the blast-off. At least he was not completely unarmed. He still had Dad's revolver at his side. He smiled to himself. The pirates would have their prisoners indeed, but they would have one factor to deal with that they had not counted on. For Greg, it was a bitter, lonely trip. After ten hours, they saw the huge Jupiter-equilateral orbit ship looming up in the viewscreen like a minor planet. Skillfully, Doc maneuvered the ship into the launching rack. The guards unstrapped the prisoners and handed them pressure suits. Moments later they were in a section in cruise quarters where they stripped off their suits. This orbit ship was much larger than Roger Hunter's. The gravity was almost Mars normal, and it was comforting just to stretch and relax their cramped muscles, as long as they didn't think of what was ahead. Finally, Johnny grinned and slapped Greg's shoulder. Cheer up, he said. We'll be honored guests for a while. You can bet on that. For a while, Greg said bitterly. Just then, the hatchway opened. Well, who do we have here? A familiar voice said. Returning call, you might say. And maybe this time you'll be ready for a bit of bargaining. They turned to see the heavy face and angry gray eyes of Merrill Tawney. The casual observer might have been fooled. Tony's guard was down only for an instant then the expression of cold fury and determination on his face dropped away as though the shutter of a camera had clicked and he was still all smiles and affability they were honored guests here one would have thought and this pudgy agent of the jupiter equilateral combine was their genial host anxious for their welfare eager to do anything he could for their comfort they were amazed by the luxuriousness of the ship for the next few hours they received the best treatment Sumptuous accommodations, excellent food. They were finishing their second cup of coffee, when Tawny asked—'Feeling better, gentlemen? You do things in a big way," Johnny said. This is real coffee, made from grounds—must have cost a fortune to ship it out here. Tawney spread his hands—'We keep it for special occasions, like when we have special visitors—even when the visits aren't voluntary," Greg added sourly. We have to be realistic," Tawny said. Would you have come if we invited you? Of course not. You gentlemen chose to come out into the belt in spite of my warnings. You thus made things very awkward for us—upset our certain plans!" He looked at Greg. "'We don't ordinarily allow people to upset our plans. But now we find that we're forced to include you in our plans, whether you happen to like the idea or not.' "'You're doing a lot of talking,' Greg said. "'Why don't you come to the point?' Tawney was no longer smiling. We happen to know that your father struck a rich load on one of his claims. That's interesting, Greg said. Did Dad tell you that? He didn't have to. A man can't keep a secret like that. Not for very long. Ask your friend here if you don't believe me. And we make it our business to know what's going on out here. We have to in order to survive. Well, suppose you heard right. The law says that what a man finds on his own claim is his. Certainly, Tony said. Nobody would think of claim-jumping these days, but when a man happens to die before he can bring in his bonanza, then it's a question of who gets there first, wouldn't you think?' "'Not when the man is murdered,' Greg said hotly. "'Not by a long shot.' "'But you can't prove that your father was murdered.' "'If I could, I wouldn't be here.' "'Then I think we'll stick to the law,' Tawney said, "'and call it an accident.' "'And what about my brother? Was that an accident?' "'Ah, yes, your brother,' Tawney's eyes hardened. "'Quite a different matter, that. "'Sometimes Doc tends to be overzealous in carrying out his assigned duties. "'I can assure you that he has been disciplined.' "'That's not going to help Tom much.' "'Unfortunately not,' Tawney said. "'Your brother made a very foolish move under the circumstances. "'But from a practical point of view, perhaps it's not entirely a tragedy.' "'What do you mean by that?' "'From what I've heard,' Tawney said. You didn't have much use for your twin brother, and now you certainly won't have to share your father's legacy." It was too much. With a roar, Greg swung at the little fat man. The blow caught Tawny full in the jaw, jerked his head back. Greg threw his shoulder into a hard left, slamming Tawny back against the wall. The guard charged across the room, dragging them apart as Tawny blubbered and tried to cover his face. Greg dug his elbow into the yard's stomach, twisted away, and started for Tawny again. Then Johnny caught his arm and spun him around stop it he snapped use your head boy gregg stopped glaring at tawny and grasping for breath the company man picked himself up rubbing his hand across his mouth for a moment he trembled with rage then he gripped the table with one hand forcibly regaining his control he managed even a sickly smile just like your father he said too hot-headed for your own good but we'll let it pass i brought you here to make you an offer a very generous offer and i'll still make it i am a businessman. when i want something i want i bargain for it if i have to share a profit to get it i share the profit all right you know where your father's strike is we want it we can't find it so you've got us over a barrel we're ready to bargain greg started forward i wouldn't bargain with you for shut up greg johnny said greg stared at him the big miner's voice had cracked like a whip now he was drawing merrill tawny aside speaking rapidly into his ear Tawney listened, shot a venomous glance across at Gregg, and finally nodded. All right, he said, but I can't wait forever. You won't have to. Tawney turned to the guard. You have your orders, he said. They're to have these quarters in the freedom of the ship, except for the outer level. They're not to be harmed, and they're not to be out of your sight, except when they're locked in here. Is that clear? The guard nodded. Tawny looked at Johnny and started for the door, still rubbing his jaw we'll talk again later he said and then he was gone when the guard had left and the lock buzzed in the door johnny looked at greg and shook his head sadly you just about fixed things boy you really did you've got to use your head if you want to stay alive a while. that's all look there isn't going to be any bargaining with tawny he just doesn't work that way it's heads he wins tails we lose once he has what he wants we won't last six minutes all right then there's just one thing that can keep us alive stalling him we've got to make him think you'll give in if he plays his cards right greg was silent for a minute i hadn't thought of it that way and we've got to use the time we have to find some way to break for it johnny stood up staring around the luxurious lounge if you want my opinion it's going to take some pretty fancy footwork to get out of here with our skins true to his word tawny had given them the freedom of the ship greg and johnny discovered that their guard was also an excellent guide All day he had been leading them through the ship, chatting and answering their questions about asteroid mining, until they almost forgot that they were really prisoners here. And the guard's obvious pride in the scope and skill of his company's mining operations was strangely infectious. Watching the Jupiter equilateral ship in operation, Greg felt his heart sink. Here was a huge, powerful organization, with all the equipment and men and know-how they could ever need how could one man or two or three in a team hope to compete with them for the independent miner the only hope was the big strike the single load that could make him rich he might work all his life without finding it and then stumble upon it by sheer chance but if he couldn't keep it when he found it what then what if the great mining company became so strong that they could be their own law in the belt What if they grew strong enough and powerful enough to challenge the United Nations on Mars itself, and gain control of the entire mining industry? What chance would the independent miner have then? It was a frightening picture. Suddenly something began to make sense to Greg. He realized something about his father that he had never known before. Roger Hunter had been a miner, yes, but he had been something else, too—something far more important than just a miner. Roger Hunter had been a fighter fighting to the end for something that he believed in. Tawney interrupted Greg's thought. Quite an operation, he said. Greg looked at him. So I see. And very efficient, too. Our men have everything they need to work with. We can mine at far less cost than anyone else. But you still can't stand the idea of independent miners working the belt, Greg said. Tawney's eyebrows went up. But why not? There's lots of room out here. Our operation with Jupiter Equilateral is no different from an independent miner's operation. We aren't different kinds of people, Tawny smiled. When you get right down to it, we're both exactly the same, scavengers in space, vultures picking over the dead remains to see what we can find. We come out to the asteroids and we bring back what we want and leave the rest behind. And it doesn't matter whether we've got one ship working or 400. We're still just scavengers. With just one difference, Greg said, turning away from the view screen. Difference? Greg nodded. Even vultures don't kill their own, he said. Later, when they were alone in their quarters again, Greg and Johnny stared at each other gloomily. Didn't you see anything that might help us? Greg said. Not much. For an orbit ship, this place is a fortress. I got a good look at that scout ship coming in. It was armed to the teeth. Probably they all are. And they're keeping a guard now at every airlock. So we're sewed up tight, Greg said. Looks that way. They've got us both, boy, and I think Tawny's patience is wearing thin, too. We're either going to have to produce or else. But what can we do? Start bluffing. It seems to me we're just about bluffed out. I mean talk business, said Johnny. Tell Tawney what he wants to know. When we don't know any more than he does, how? Johnny Coombs scratched his jaw. I've been thinking about that, he said slowly. And I wonder if we don't know a whole lot more than we think we do. Like what? Greg said. We've all been looking for the same thing a big strike, a bonanza load. Tawny's men have raked over every one of your dad's claims, and they haven't turned up a thing. Johnny looked at Greg. Makes you wonder a little, doesn't it? Your dad was smart, but he was no magician. And how does a man go about hiding something like a vein of ore? I don't know, Greg said. It doesn't seem possible. It isn't possible, Johnny said flatly. There's only one possible explanation, and we've been missing it all along. Whatever he found, it wasn't an ore strike. It was something else, something far different from anything we've been thinking of. Greg stared at him. But if it wasn't an ore strike, what was it? I don't know, Johnny said. But I'm sure of one thing: it was something important enough that he was ready to die before he revealed it, and that means it was important enough that Tawny won't dare kill us until he finds out what it was. End of Gold in the Sky, Part Four, Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, Voiceovers by Kirk. dot com.